Well, we're almost done with the season, but we have saved the best for last, Jen. I, if I could break out into song right now and not scare people <laughs> away, maybe I would. <laughs> Seriously? That is the dulcet, um, oh. melodic, oh. I would think, probably tone of Kennedy Ryan, one of our very favorites. Welcome, Kennedy. Oh, my gosh. You guys are my very favorites. I'm always pushing your podcast down people's throats in the best way. <laughs> That's what we like to hear. Yes, we like to is. hear about people just violently re- requiring people to yes. listen to us. All the time. I was just <laughs> screenshotting the one you guys did about old school room. Uh, the one you did um, not too long ago, the Judith McNaught episode. <gasps> I was shoving down every throat I could find <laughs> last week. So I'm your pusher. <laughs> I like it. We're here for it. Um, welcome, everybody, to Faded Mates. We are um, really, really excited this week because, and I didn't know this, I feel like, I feel like, Kennedy, you and I, we have just sort of unpacked our friendship to a new level because <laughs> I had no idea you were such a fan of old school romances. Oh my gosh, yes. I definitely am. <laughs> I A lot of times people will bring out some of the new stuff and I'm like, oh, I haven't read that yet. Uh, Sierra Simone and I have a joke because she's like, how have you read all the old stuff? And also, there's like all this great new stuff you haven't gotten to yet. I'm like, I just keep rereading the old stuff. It's so good. <laughs> so well, yeah, I'm that, I'm that chick. <laughs> so reading almost- is also like, uh, I'm, I'm rereading a lot in these pandemic days. I really oh, am. Yeah. I have books that are annual rereads for me, like books that I say, like I build into my reading schedule. I have to reread this book once a year. Um, certain books, like Flowers from the Storm, like they're just certain books I have to read at least once a year. Well, you are a mega Kinsale stan. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> mega, <laughs> mega I, I tell people, if you cut me, I'm going to bleed some Kinsale. Like, <laughs> I adore her. Everybody who knows me knows that. <laughs> Did you start with Kinsale? Is that how no. you came to her? Yeah. Okay, I'm like, so- tell us your romance journey. I feel like we should ask everybody this. Are we just diving in? Yes. <laughs> well, we are. I mean, we'll we come are. back around. We're we're just ro- we're roaming. <laughs> I'm ready. Roaming romance. I am ready for it. So I think of myself as twice-blooded <laughs> because oh, uh, um, I started reading romance. Re- well, I, for me, it's really young. I was in the eighth grade. And um, you have to understand, my parents are pastors. So uh-huh. they, <laughs> they were very careful about what I listened to, what I saw on television, like what I read, very much like curated in our house. And <laughs> when I was in the eighth grade, one of my friends handed Handed me um, a pirate's love. I think it was a pirate's love. No, it was the Wolf and the Dove, and it was like this old battered copy. Because I'm, old, I think I'm older than both of you. So <laughs> it, this was like, gosh, it was like the late '80s when I was in the eighth grade. Because I, yeah, I'm 47. So me, I'm almost 47. So we're very but close. But I still got you, Jen. I still got you. <laughs> I'm so young. I'm so young. It's nice not to be the old lady on the podcast. I guess. Yeah, I I will gladly take the hoary honor of old lady. (laughs) So um, I was in the eighth grade. And, you know, I mean, romance was pretty, I mean, as we know it as a genre, still really developing. Um, And so she gave me this tattered paperback of The Wolf and the Dove. 
Uh, of course, that's Woodowis. And I just consumed it. Yeah. And I still, Sarah and I talk about, I still, I think because that was my first romance, Medieval still holds a really special place in my heart. Well, I mean, we've talked about this. All of us have talked about this. And certainly we've talked about it on the pod. But the, the these early books, like Blooded Twice, I can't wait to hear who the second blooding is. But the but Blooding Twice is really interesting because those early books, I really think they install your buttons, your, you know, primal sex buttons. <laughs> yes, I think I was going to say plot buttons, but okay. <laughs> both, both, both. Yes. And I mean, at the time, you you know, you're, I was in the eighth grade and I had no idea, wow, this book's kind of rapey or, you know, I had no concept of that. It was just like, I'm enjoying this. You know, it was just, it was very sensory. I enjoyed the pull. You know, I was reading, you know, Wuthering Heights, <laughs> you know, or whatever, you know, Beloved. I was reading literary fiction or whatever they were feeding you in school yeah. and something that was completely pleasure and also for me because I was young and I was such a late bloomer like don't even ask me when I had my first kiss it was like 11th grade (laughs) so for me it was just all fascinating honestly and to see a relationship that way and there was history you know I did I hadn't known much about the Normans and you know these marriages being you know arranged by this king who you know I, I didn't know a lot of those things so I was actually learning those things as I was reading. And you know, that's one thing that we never talk about is the amount of learning that goes on for Absolutely. romance readers, especially when we're young. I mean, I always joke that like my SAT scores were really great in verbal and really terrible in math. And the reason why they were great in verbal is because of romance novels, because I knew all the words. <laughs> Absolutely. And my father, he was a dean of students. Um, he's in higher education. And he would, when I was growing up, he would assign me, this is going to sound crazy, he would assign me letters of the dictionary and I would just read the dictionary and he would come home and he would quiz me on in, you know, and we would go back and forth until we could stump each other on an in word. Oh, that sounded bad, <laughs> bad choice of letters, <laughs> but, but, you know, and he would say, okay, when you're reading, every time you come across a word that you don't know, write it down. And then over the next week, make sure you use it in a sentence. You know what? I'm going to start using this for the summer with, with my daughter. This is such a good idea. It's amazing. And so my dad, that's what he would say. Every every time you're reading, you come across a word you don't know, write it down, look it up, You try to use it within a week so that it, it can become a part of you, can become a part of your vocabulary. Oh, so I of course it. I was doing that before. Then I started reading romance. You know, right. He didn't know that. <laughs> and, then, you know. and then you had all different words. <laughs> yes, all different words. And here's the thing, you guys, I didn't know at first to keep it from my parents. <laughs> so I'm walking around, you know, I'm walking around. My mom is like, what is that? And (laughs) she wanted to take it from me. And so I started smuggling romance novels into my house. I had them them stuffed under my mattress. I would go to the library and I would come out with like my respectable books and I would pack my backpack (laughs) full of all of my, and see, this is what I mean by twice blooded. Because when I first came into romance,
romance. It was Joanna Lindsay. It was Kathleen Woodowiss. And then I got into category. So it was Charlotte Lamb. It was mm-hmm. Carol Mortimer. It was Carol. Robin Donald. Yep. Oh, oh, my God. God. You know, all the, the one name uh, mm-hmm. books by Carol Mortimer, like frustration. <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, my God. I have no idea what that means, but I've got to read it, you know? So my bag would be stuffed with all of my romance novels, and I would carry into the house all of my respectable ones, and then I would stuff them in the back of my closet, in my mattresses. Oh, my God. You turned to a life of crime. I, I actually did. I turned to a life of crime just to get my You're fix. the pastor's daughter. It's it's all there. It's I magical. I'm it just, just like podcast over. <laughs> It was awful. I mean, it was awful. It was. It was. A no, it life. was amazing. It was, but you know what? So many of us did that. Of I course. Mean, so I. T- I. I think I've. I don't know if I've ever told this story on the podcast. I've certainly told it in interviews. But I when. You know, when I was young, when I was in middle school, the library was across the middle school parking lot. And, you know, I would go there after school and they kept the romance novels literally in the dark. The lights were turned off in the in the aisles where they kept romance. And I was like, well, this is clearly for me. And I like lurked in the darkness reading, you know, furtively any book that had Fabio on the cover. And and the reality is, it's like we are trained from Mm from. From, you know, infancy in romance to hide the reading. Yes. Can I tell you, I think we've all had that, that experience. And so the thing that like hurts me is when fellow romance readers talk about their kids wanting to read romance and them not letting them. Mm. And I'm just like, it's hard. Yeah. Don't you remember what that was like? Why are you doing that? (laughs) It's really (laughs) hard for me. And I just keep my mouth shut because I, I, but it's like, oh, I leave romances all over my house. And you all know my extreme effing disappointment that my son cannot be bothered to read them. I'm just like, (laughs) my God. Or I'm always like, don't you want to take these to your friends? <laughs> He's like, sure, mom. Uh, God. Well, my someday I hope to have Tessa Dare on the podcast. But one of my favorite Tessa stories is that um, she had she has, you know, a teenage daughter. But right when that when when, you know, 12 or 13, that sort of sweet spot of when you find out that sex exists and you're like, mm-hmm. what is this about? Um, she just she got a call, I think, from a mom at her school who was like, all the kids are passing around your books <gasps> because they're reading and they're reading all the salacious bits. Oh my God. And Tessa was like, well, I don't know what to say about that. Like, I'm not going to tell you that it's not a good, like, at, ultimately, wouldn't you like your kids to know that, like, when they have sex, they should be having it in a thoughtful, like, way with people who care about their pleasure and care about, you know, them, right? Yeah. Um... And it's, it's a tricky thing. I mean, I get it. I get the 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 hesitance, but yeah. I mean, I I can remember just sort of skipping over sex scenes for a long time because mm. I just didn't. Yeah, get it. Just like I mean, especially in those early years. Oh, the euf- the year of the in euphemism. The, I mean, what on <laughs> earth is going on? What's what's a velvet cave? Who's what? <laughs> What is the member? <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, it's something's going on. Is but it's this a club that can be joined? I'm still stuck on the velvet cake. <laughs> it sounds so warm. 
as was you know satellite radio brings a lot of like when we used to drive you know back before pandemic times and had to go places (laughs) we i heard the song um by sheena easton that i really remember liking as a kid sugar walls Almost oh. drove off the road at how oh, filthy yes. it is. I was yeah. like, oh. oh yes. Oh well, I mean, can we talk about Prince? I was gonna say Prince wrote that, right? Because... Oh god, yes. Oh well, yeah, Sheena Easton. So here's my here's a fun fact about, and surely this is about to become the musical theme of this episode. <laughs> One of Eric's so. like very favorite things is to like drop Prince protege names just in yes. conversation. Yeah, and I so I know, yeah, Sheena Easton was a Prince protege, and he probably wrote that song for her. I, I'm pretty sure he but wrote But also because he wrote all of those all like of sex euphemism all, songs. Uh, darling Nikki. I could not resist when I saw little Nikki cry. Oh my gosh. Oh boy. I mean, my Just, husband, he, he, I think Vanity was one of his protégés. And all of them. And my husband had all of them on his wall growing up. He actually saw Prince like in the bathtub before Prince, you know, stopped doing his nasty stuff live. Mm-hmm. So we got a whole. He he calls um, uh, a door. He calls it a hymn. <laughs> he refers to a door as our hymn. <laughs> oh boy. The, the full extended version now. So. You guys, just this morning, Sheris Hodges on Twitter posted the most amazing tweet. It says, I was today years old when I found out that Prince stole Rick James's woman and turned her into vanity. <laughs> Prince. A hero. Prince, in I every mean, way. R.I.P. Rest in purple. <laughs> Kennedy, you just became Eric, our producer's favorite romance novelist. Yes! Period. That's Period. it. Hands down, you're going to have to come back again and again. <laughs> it's of no effort. You said Vanity oh, was yeah. a Prince protege, and now that's it. You're his favorite. <laughs> and I will not be dethroned. I will figure nope. out how to stay in that top spot. <laughs> There's no one else. We've we've never met we've another never, who knew yeah. so much I Prince to, obscure I will Prince say trivia. To all of our listeners out there, when the world gets back to normal, if you're ever in Minneapolis, please go visit... Um, his studio is now like a tour you can go on and we went as a family and it was honestly one of the best like touristy things we've ever done it was awesome i would just die and you know his family has given ava duvernay who i mean i have to genuflect when i say her name because she's a goddess um but um the family has given her access to like his full catalog like hundreds of songs he never published and she's working on something about his life and oh, Ava wow. and Prince together don't I can't even wait shut the house down close that's door. amazing well so euphemisms sex euphemisms yes <laughs> like the velvet cave which sounds very warm but and sweaty similar to Prince these early sex these early sex scenes like that you might not understand exactly yes. what's going on but you definitely know it's dirty yes yes <laughs> so um yeah so those so okay so we have 
Woodowis. You yeah. are like blooded by the original. You're oh, like, oh yeah. I mean, you're like the most powerful vampire among us. <laughs> I'm an ori- I am an original. Okay? <laughs> oh my yeah, god. Yeah. So it was. It's Woodowis. You know, and this I know. Well, see, when you, if you have ever read The Wolf and the Dove, like it does, it it has the rapey overtones because in the beginning. I, I, I was about to say I don't want to spoil the wolf in the dove, but I mean, come on now. It's, it's 50 years old. I, I say, think it's I think okay. We're safe. Spoiler alert. Um, but you know, when it first starts, you she does a great job of redirecting you, misdirecting you for the entire novel. You know, so you think that I hate that I still know these names. You think that Ragnar has has raped her, um, but he he hasn't. You know, and then so he hasn't raped her. her mother intervened, put some blood on, you know, her kernel. <laughs> oh, the famous blood, blood, all the blood scenes. The old blood on the kernel trick, you know. Oh, boy. Um, and then so Wolfgar doesn't actually rape her. He instead chains her to the foot of his bed and wants everyone else to think that he's raping her because he has his machismo that he has to maintain, but he doesn't actually rape her. And when they come together, member to Velvet Cave, (laughs) it's painful, and we think it's painful because, hey, she's only had sex one time, and Wolfgar is hulking with a huge member, but it's really because she's an actual virgin, and she wasn't raped. And And everyone knows sex is never painful after the first time. After the first time. And the first time, you bleed like a gallon of blood. Oh, you have to, (laughs) even though we don't have to display the sheets anymore, (laughs) it still just gushes from your body. I will say, I remember a lot of those old historicals where, like, people displayed the sheets. And I will say there's, like, there's, like, installing your buttons, and then there's, like, the anti-buttons. Whatever you read. And I remember, like, as a teenager reading those scenes and being like, listen, what the fuck? This is not okay. (laughs) This is never okay. (laughs) Yes. So, yeah. But also there's something so, again, it goes back to, we've talked about this whenever we talk about um, medievals, right? And then being, then sort of having that kind of over-the-top, wild bananas storyline. Yeah. And the reality is, is like something about that is really primal for so many of us. Very much so. Um, And there's something, but again, it sort of strips away all the trappings of um, gentility and hands you a hero who is just raw patriarchy and has to be Mm -hmm. just destroyed. And you're re- what, tell everybody what you're reading right now, Henry. <sighs> well, I'm usually re- I'm usually so I have come to a place where my life is just really really hectic, and most of the books I consume are through audio. Um, so I'm listening to Forbidden uh, by Beverly mm, Jenkins. God, one of my favorites. I just finished. I've and I just finished on audio. I'm just telling people because it's spectacular. It's not even historical. I just finished um, Beach Read on audio, which mm-hmm. is. Fantastic. Fantastic. I loved that book. Loved I that really book. did. Jen hasn't read it, but it's oh, so it's good. It's so good, Jen. It's so, the writing like sparkles. Um, anyway, it, it, it sparkles. Uh, but I, everybody who knows me knows it. Like historical romance is kind of it's like my favorite. And um, I have like I have all the Kinsale, <laughs> all the Kinsale on audio. But um, what I, certain books 
they're so old, you can't even get them in audio. And I love a lot of those, like uh, Magnificent Rogue. Iris um, Johansson. Iris Johansson. And you know what's so funny is I, call, I said that I was twice-blooded. Like when I was first-blooded, I only read romance from the eighth grade until my senior year in high school. So I had like five years of romance, and a lot of that was category. And er- I don't know if you guys Wait, remember. so you stopped reading romance? When I got to college. Cold I, turkey? Mm. I, you know, it's like... I how impressive. I, I know. I went into college and I stopped reading romance. And I just, I don't know if it was because I was adjusting so many things and there was so much to read and there was so much to do, but I just lost it, you know, and I started reading other things and doing other things. And I just kind of lost romance for a really long time. Like I didn't pick romance back up until I was close to 40 years old. Oh, wow. And I had, uh, my son has autism and I had started a foundation for family who have children with autism and I was running that foundation and I was of course raising a child with special needs and I was advocating for other families my whole life felt right. like it was autism and everything I read everything I consumed was around special needs and waivers <laughs> I was drowning honestly and I needed something for myself I needed an escape I needed something that just was purely pleasure for me. Mm-hmm. And I just remembered how much I loved romance. And I just picked up, I started going to the library again, like just on my own, picking up some of the things that I loved before. But I don't even remember, Ken Sale, I don't even think was in the mix when I was blooded the first time. Uh, I, when I was first blooded, I think Iris Johansson was, I don't know if you guys remember, oh, she used God, to write yes. for like Silhouette, some some yes. category romance. She wrote for Love Sweat. She wrote for Love Sweat. And they it. were so good. They were so good. <laughs> so good. And some of the plots were like, whoa, like over the top. Um, I'm trying to think of this one. It had like magical realism and I cannot remember the name of it, but he was like a, not a, she was like a, not a sorceress, but it just, it, some, I was, I was like, like, I bet it was this fierce splendor. I bet it was this fierce And the reason I know that is because that's the one where they have sex on the horse and she's some sort of magical, like, Jensen expert. Jensen expert. I, 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 yeah, there was, like, a whole, like, kind of series where it was, like, her and Fairine Preston and Kay Hooper. Kay Hooper! Oh, my gosh! Yeah. When you said Kay Hooper, and I remembered. And they would write, like, the three of them would write these like trilogies where they each took one person and then they would all come out and they did like the Delaney's which I think is what but yeah it was a lot it was a lot right and so I remember that and so I remembered I liked Iris Johansson um and I picked up in in this whole re-blooding my second blooding Kinsale was out and um, Iris Johansson had written The Magnificent Rogue. And that's the one I started rereading. And it is fantastic. Also it is a medieval. Also, again, also a medieval. It's um, queen. And, and just to give you, for anybody, and also I pride myself on kind of obscure historical romances that when, because it's like my secret pride when people ask for my favorites and I say something like, and some people will know these, Night, Night in Eden by Candace Proctor. Oh, I don't mm. know that one. I'm writing it. <laughs> That okay, name sounds familiar. What? You guys. Okay, do you I'm know Pen- reading it right now. <laughs> do you know Penelope Williamson? Yes, of course. 
can't. Okay, so Penelope Williamson. Wait, first, repeat the other one. Now I'm, I got a pen cap in my mouth. <laughs> I'm gonna start with who? Who? Oh, so you know Penelope Williamson, right? So I, know I her, love yeah. some of hers. Like she wrote uh, Wild Yearning. She wrote. Uh, she has a medieval that I love, and I can't remember the name right at the top, but I will. Anyway, so you know Penelope Williamson. Candace Proctor is her sister. What? Mm. What? When I found that out, my mind was completely blown. And one of my favorite novels is Night in Eden. And this is written like in 95, 97. And it reminds me, in, you know, everything in that that period was Regency or medieval or, you know, it was... It was really, it was the heyday of medievals. Those yeah, early, heyday. The, the, heyday. the early 90s, yeah. So this felt so different because Night in Eden is about, um, it's in the 1800s. I can't remember where in the 1800s, maybe mid 1800s. Well, who cares? <laughs> we did a whole episode where we decided readers don't care. Yeah, so I think care. but I think it's like the Regency era. Okay, so um, she, the heroine, kills her husband. She had a baby who died. You guys, nice. this is fantastic because it's nice. not even in England. She starts in England. I think uh, she starts in England. And then she gets shipped to New South Wales, a, a prison, like as a prisoner. <gasps> Waiting. Oh, you don't even understand. And now I feel like I've I read do. I feel like I'm like, <laughs> this right? is me and Sarah. Shipped like, to Australia feels real familiar. Yeah, yeah, me so too. good, you guys. And so she becomes an indentured servant. And she, her baby, she's pregnant. She has her baby in prison. And then she's on the mm. ship on her way to, I don't want to give the whole thing away because a lot of people may not have read it. You know it. what? This is probably the first two chapters. Who are we kidding? I mean, right. it's <laughs> just the beginning. I'm not going to tell you everything because the plot gets bananas. The plot gets bananas. You know, we love bananas. But so she gets on the ship on her way to New South Wales as an indentured servant um, because she killed her husband. She, it, it was it was an accident, but of course. But what? But he was terrible and deserved it. Horrible. He was terrible. He was cheating on her. Okay, we'll find that out later. So go. I don't want to spoil things. Anyway, so her baby dies. <gasps> her baby, her baby dies. Candace Proctor just breaking rules. Oh, you just understand all the rules, and this is ninety-seven. Oh yeah. my God, it's not that early. Yeah, like to give everybody a frame of reference, the Bridgertons the following year are going to be out. Yeah. Wow, I didn't even make that connection. But I do. I feel like there is, and I feel like it's true today too that there's sort of like a, a, always a strain of romance that is doing the most. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's real fearlessness going oh, this, on here. You guys, you have no idea. This is so fearless because the captain that who she's going to go work for, you know, work out her term for, he is, of course, gorgeous, but he's just lost his wife. He has a baby. Nope. She has to nurse she nurses the baby. It. She nurses his baby, you guys. Oh, God. Of course she does. Because she's got her milk. <laughs> This is like that Sandra Brown yes. book that we talked about. There's yep. an old school Sandra Brown from earlier. Where she's the wet nurse. Yeah. Yes, wet nurse. Yes, Sorry. I think that's the technical oh term. God, it is the technical so term. Bananas. It's also in in Romeo and Juliet. Isn't the nurse of her? Like, oh, it's her it's nurse. Her, her yeah. wet that's nurse. Because wet rich nurse. people hired wet nurses back yep. in the in the day. Yep. Listen, I hired a wet nurse too. It was called Infamil. <laughs> like what the fuck. <laughs> People were like, isn't formula expensive? I was like, I'm going to send this motherfucker off to college one day. <laughs> I can afford it. 
champ formula a week. My God. I love it. The modern wet nurse. <laughs> In a canister. <laughs> tell any more but it is fan well i know what i'm reading at the beach next month it is so. so good it is so good it has to build that's the other thing is i love the stories that really build and so flowers from this that's why i love can sail so much it and a lot of my friends when i I feel like I'm all over the place because you asked what I'm reading now. I'm rereading Magnificent Rogue. Right. That's what I want. I was angling for I that, know, but now I've got a better, there's a better story in here. Candace okay. Proctor. Oh gosh, Candace Proctor. Just night, Discovery. Night, Eden, night in Eden. And so with Magnificent Rogue, I don't know why I picked it up because I'm listening to, I'm listening to Forbidden Loving That, of course, and I will read things and then listen to them. So I'm listening to that. It's amazing. But I just, you know, picked up Magnificent Rogue again and I was like this is all about women's power like completely and just to give people a setting it is medieval it's yeah it's medieval it's like oh well it's Queen Elizabeth. Scotland isn't it yes it is he's a Highlander he is a Scottish Earl and he has an island uh Craig who I'm not may not be pronouncing that but he basically bends the knee to nobody and Queen Elizabeth captures him and this is before Mary Mary Queen of Scots is executed it's like right before she's executed and it is the the plot is so is woven so tightly and there's so much i love misdirection there's so much misdirection um and then he is amazing like uh, he is incredible he's tall he has dark hair he's gorgeous he's arrogant but not in like a douchey way in like an imp like in impotence you know kind of way and um um, she wants him, she's for, she has captured him. She's been trying to capture him for years, been watching him for years and realizes that he's the perfect candidate to do what she needs him to do, which is to marry this young girl who is a royal bastard. We are led to believe, and I'm not going to say that it's not because someone might read this and it's too brilliant for me to give away, <laughs> uh, even though it's 30 years old. <laughs> Anyone who's re somebody's reading it for the first time. And um, we are, you know, she's the bastard daughter of Mary. And of course, there's all this tension between Mary and Elizabeth, and then James is on the throne in Scotland. Like, it's all of this royal intrigue. And then there's this girl who is somebody's royal bastard who has been kept by this, evil priest who has been like beating her and who has been feeding her all kinds of religious nonsense for her whole life. And it reminds me of, okay, this is what reminds me of McNaught's Kingdom of Dreams. Wait, did I just say that right? Yes. Okay. Um, all she wants is home. All she wants is family. She feels like she's been starved for that. And when she sees his clan, because he does have to marry her, he marries her. And but isn't it a marriage of it's a sh it's they make a deal that it's not going to be right. they hand fast that's what they do so it's short it's, it's supposed, supposed to not to be exist. short and yeah. the reason he does that is because he recognizes she's a political pawn and she is go he is all about his island you know he doesn't bend the knee to anybody else he is like i'm self-contained over here people want me for my trade routes we got our own money we got we <laughs> i don't want to be in nobody's i don't want to fight anybody's war like he's but he's possessively protective of his people and she goes i want to belong 
wrong. You know, yeah. she sees the way he takes care of his people, the way he, because the, the thing that Queen Elizabeth uses to get him to marry her is that one of his kinsmen is with him. And he's like, you can do whatever you want to do to me. I don't care. But then she says, I will hang him right now if you don't marry her. And he does. You know, he's like, you can kill me, but you can't touch. He says, I protect what's mine. Nobody's mm. ever going to hurt what's mine. And mine, it's the mine, kind of, mine, 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 But it's not even just applied to her. It's applied to anyone who's under his protection. Uh, she compares him to a falcon who spreads his wings over his whole clan. And she goes, I want to be in the shadow. Oh, my God. Okay. Put it <laughs> in my veins. I'm freaking done. But the thing is, she starts to find her power, and she is some royal's daughter, and he start he knows that, but she starts to realize it, and she starts to realize she has power, even when like even when they have sex, like for the first time and second time or whatever, she starts to articulate the power of her own pleasure, and he teaches her that he's like, "You have power over me, I can't resist you." Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, and then every, I'm going to go back and reread this book every right. Now. Woman, there's another woman who comes and she's smiling and she's innocent and as soon as the door like with all the guys and as soon as the door closes she's like okay here's here's what we're gonna do you know and it, it's just like love it. power she understands the patriarch she's working inside of and how to leverage her gifts and her power um to get around them you know she's always they're always looking for workarounds and i love that about this book and uh it, she becomes in the beginning she's timid She's weak on the surface, but she has this like steel backbone and you begin to see her rise like and the power by the end of the book. It's so clearly her novel. It's so clearly her story. It's so clearly she is the most powerful piece on the whole board. And he recognizes that till I don't want to give it away. The 30 year spoiler. But at the end, even he's like, what do you want me to do? I will leave my clan. I will do this. I will do whatever. Yeah. I, You know, it's just That's the joy of it. It's so empowering. But um, you know what's interesting though is we talk so much about these crazy, like over the top plots. And the reality is is like they're not they don't they're not just they don't just happen to be. They're overt and they have they are there so that stories like this can overtly discuss power and how women have it and how women use it and where power comes from and how it can be wielded. Yeah. Especially when it's obscure power. I think it's about persistence too, right? Like what we see is like this evolution of women in the face of like, you have to keep, if you want to outsmart the patriarchy, it's going to take persistent hard work that you're going to keep doing in as many ways as you can until you get what you want and get what you need. Yeah. Right? But these power moves are... I mean, what's interesting is that these older plots, I mean, they don't really happen as much anymore in current day, but we still have heroines who can make queen moves, don't we? (laughs) Oh, Thank you. Thank to the way... Rim shot. <laughs> it's we two do. years in. I'm good at it now. I see that. You're as smooth as ribbon. <laughs> no, but oh, so I mean, I'm going to just I'm just going to like fangirl over Queen Move for a little bit here because I think so. 
you know, Jen talks a lot about when people sort of hit their imperial period as writers. And I feel like I have always loved your writing. I have always felt like you take the finger, like you lean into um, fear when you're writing. And I think that and, and I think you're a magnificent writer. But oh Queen God, Move Sarah. is like elevated to a new I mean, the whole series, but like yeah. Queen Move is like, I feel like you are, you're writing at the top of the game, not your game, the game. Like, <laughs> my mouth it, is hanging open because so, you're Sarah. <laughs> I don't even. So it just feels to me, but I, part of what's glorious about Queen Move is this magnificent heroine who mm. is just. She, you back her up against the wall emotionally right from the start, from like page one. Yeah. And then you unpack. I mean, there's a lot to love about this book. It's also really epic in the way that some of these old romances, like I can see the bones of your blooding mm, in, yeah, in yeah. this book. You know, and part of that is because I've just spent a year with Jen, like really unpacking what it, what what the bones of romance are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's clear to me that you're, you've are you been taught to write romance by all the people who taught me to write romance, too. So, yes. of course, I'm, like, naturally drawn to your books. But there's something just, like, Same. epic. Because I just finished Daring, so fangirl over here. <laughs> but you already know that. I was texting you the whole time. <laughs> yeah, but this is my turn. This is, I'm, it's my podcast, so it's I get to podcast. talk. It's your podcast. So, um, <laughs> So this, so there's this epicness about the whole story, especially because you also are telling the story of multi, multiple generations. Yes. yes. But um, this, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the evolution of this particular heroine, mm-hmm. and like, and just tell everybody a little bit about where you came, how you came to her. You know, um, so the heroine's name is Kimba. And uh, for anyone who read the All the King's Men duet, she is the best friend in uh, uh, the first two books of, you know, the duet, The Kingmaker and The Rebel King. And Lennox is the heroine in that. And just to give context, it's kind of like scandalesque in the sense that they're like gladiators. You know, they're like white hat girls. So they start their own political consulting firm specifically to install people in power who they believe will advance the causes of marginalized people. And so our heroine in those, the duet is Native American, she's Yavapai Apache, and um, Kimba, of course, is black. And so they are like all about the brown girls, all about the black girls, all about queer people. Like they're all about marginalized groups and making sure that we're putting people in power who are going to advance those causes. And so I won't talk about everything that happens in the duet, um, because that is bananas. (laughs) You know, that is a lot. It's a lot. But, Um, like, magnificently bananas. It's not, like, I'm here for all these. This is my point. Like, I'm here from contemporary 2020 romance to take these risks, because I think we're still having these conversations. The patriarchy still exists. It's still still coming for marginalized groups and women and and it feels like these big stories deserve to be told now more than ever in some ways they just have to be twisted a little bit yeah anyway I think so and I I think one thing that was interesting for me was when you talk about you know how you're blooded obviously the books that blooded me once and then twice and my twice blooding my second blooding that's when I discovered Kinsale who is 
I mean, to me, like Kinsale is like the highest bar you can reach, you know, um, flowers from the storm. I adore, I found, um, and I know I just slipped back in historical mode. I'm sorry. I'll get there. <laughs> Come back around. It's fine. I will. Flowers from the storm. <laughs> when I read it, I just kind of sat there. Like I can't even process what just happened, you know, because and I think when you talk about who are the writers who inspire you, I'm not even saying that I'm anywhere close or would ever be to Laura Kinsale, but she is like the little angel on my shoulder when I'm writing because she does not pander to readers. She doesn't say, oh, they may not know this word, or she doesn't say, oh, this might be too hard, or she doesn't say, wow, they're going to have to get through this first. She is fearless, and she's like, either you're with me or you're not. Yes, the Duke is going to mm. have a stroke. <laughs> and no, he's not going to speak right for the rest of the book. <laughs> and yes, she's a Quaker. And she's going to say thee and thou for the whole book. Deal with it. Uh, you know, it's like she is just... And the, the the intricacy of the way she writes and the way she develops plots, it affects me. Um, and that kind of, just for an example, when you read Shadowheart, which again, medieval, you know, she has a medieval duology, not even a duology because they're, they're standalone, but it's the, uh, For My Lady's Heart. Oh, companions. And, yeah, they're companions. For My Lady's Heart. And then years later, she writes um, Shadowheart. And the hero is the best anti-hero. He is an actual assassin. I love assassins. I do. I love assassins. Okay, this is the level of assassin this dude is. He's trying, they're in, I think, a street market. And he, and again, it's medieval. And he needs her to shut up. And she's screaming and screaming and screaming. She doesn't get it. He does that, like, pressure point thing on her neck. And she faints. <laughs> and she's swooned, you know. It's just like, oh, we have to take care of her. She fainted. And he, like, literally made her faint. He is ruthless. And I know it sounds like an asshole, but he is amazing. <laughs> I like that. I know he sounds like an asshole. But this is the thing. I know. But this is the thing is it, it, she becomes, again, the same as, like, with the Magnificent Rogue. She is the heir to something that he and another guy have been fighting for. She's the rightful heir to it. Like she is the princess and they've been fighting because the throne has been vacant and she takes the throne. Um, but at the beginning, she's just like this simple farm girl, you know, who is kind of stumbling along and doesn't even know her own power. But there are elements. Now, think about how long ago this was. Elements of BDSM, strong elements of BDSM oh. in a medieval. Kinsale's real kinky. She is. Oh, my gosh. When I tell you, and this is the brilliance <laughs> of Kinsale. Okay. Jen's so, like, what is happening? I'm enjoying it all. My am. It's fine. I'm so sorry. So uh, this is the thing. Okay, so it's a medieval. We're going along. I'm going to get back to Queen Wolf. I'm so sorry. So it's a medieval. We're going. We're moving right along. And the whole time, I'm in love with him. Like, I'm in love with him because he's magnificent and he is fearless and he's ruthless, but also protective and obviously really into her. And... Um, she discovers that she has these dominant kind of tendencies and he who is like so powerful, so alpha has these, you know, tendencies where he wants to be dominated in, an, in, in, you know, in sexual situations. And so they start to play with that. And I'm the whole time, I love dual POV and it's, it's just her POV, her POV. And the whole time I'm like, gosh, I would love to know what he's thinking. Chapter 17, she has him, he, he's, 
she's much taller than she is. He's standing against a wall. She is. She gets on a step so that she can mount him. <laughs> and all of a sudden, like chapter 17 or something, it switches to his point of view. We have not heard his point of view for 17 uh, chapters. Magnificent. That is a baller move, that by the way. That is a baller move. Like, drop the mic, See, walk out the door. This is where I've got to tell you as a reader, <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like it. And I'm going to tell you why. Because now I'm like, listen, you've been keeping this man from me. But you get him for the rest of the book, Jen. You get him for the rest of the book. I don't know. I'm telling you, it works so hard. Like, because it's around chapter 17, somewhere around there. And then he's there for the rest of the book. It switches points of view for the rest of the book. And it is just, anyway, it's magnificent. So that kind of... Just intricacy of plot, just saying, readers, just come with me. You know, I'm not looking over that's, my shoulder like, are you still with thing. me? Are you still with me? I'm like, okay, either you're coming or you're not. Like, yeah. And I really hope that you do. And I'm going to try to make it as easy for you as possible, but I'm not going to compromise on the story that I want to tell. And I see that that in Kinsale. Like, that is, it, it's, um, it's just magnificent in her. I think that this is the thing, right? Jen Jen and I were talking this morning about a different book um and we were we were just having a conversation about whether or not she's reading a book that I've already read and and whether or not it worked for her. And and I here's my problem is as a writer, I really like it when someone takes that risk. Like no one's ever done this thing before, maybe it won't work, but I'm going to do it and we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Right? And I think that 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 confidence, and I do think it is, conf- I think it's learned. Like, I think mm-hmm. sometimes you see that in a debut and it's uh, naivete. <laughs> is yeah. that the right word? Like, yeah, it's, it's, right. it's just that you've never, you don't know what you don't know. And so you just sort of, you're just writing into the wind and you end up writing some sort of book that really sort of pushes the boundaries of the genre in a really interesting way. But often when we see that in a debut, the following yeah. books can't keep up with that. Yeah. So, but when somebody like Kinsale pulls this, this behavior or you, Kennedy, then what you're seeing is confidence in skill, in like the writer's confidence in their own skill, but also a sort of very clear belief that readers will follow. Yeah, like, I, I mean, yeah, I joked or whatever, but like, right, I think it all it things work if the craft is there. And one of the things I actually like really struggle with, and I can't imagine you two as authors do not either, is the sort of narrative that like writing romance is just. Like, it's always the same. And, you know, it's just this, like, silly thing, you know, women or, um, well, it used to be that women do, you know, that it's just a silly genre. And I think that when people take big risks with craft, um, their craft as authors, right? I want... I want the world to appreciate, I don't really actually maybe care what the world thinks. I want romance readers at least to appreciate that there's work that goes into this, right? Yeah. That like reader, that readers are seeing, you know, again, that imperial period thing, like, right, like we are seeing authors that are making really explicit choices. And so given what you just described about this book, it actually totally makes sense to me. Like she unlocks him somehow and yeah. now he's on the page. And what a great yeah. use of sex, too, in Gosh, that moment. Yes. Anyway, separate. I'm cutting Jen off, though. No, no. Mm-hmm. But I, I I, think, like, that's the part I... I The thing about, like, the Bananas books kind of mm-hmm. narrative is 
we as insiders to the genre like see what it's doing Mm -hmm. but i sometimes feel like outsiders to the genre use it as like a a weapon a snicker yeah and and that's you know i don't really care but i when inside i i just want us to appreciate like craft choices are our craft choices and it's not accidental people are making decisions and i do like that despite my earlier <laughs> i mean this is one of those things jen too where it's so i don't i mean i'm sure i know i know you well enough now that i know that you are very you are really enjoying this conversation with kennedy and i think that part of it is the joy of like talking to somebody who knows yes. the history mm-hmm. yeah um you know we're about to next week um we're we have a, an episode recorded with steve amondale and it and talk about somebody who just knows every knows the history of the genre and is able to really unpack why you know it's like that scene in um the devil wears prada mm-hmm. where um what's her name help me help me glenn no the other one Miranda. What's her name? Mar- <laughs> Miranda. Like, Sarah. Who's the actress, though? Oh, I want to. Meryl Streep. Or Meryl Streep says to Anne Hathaway, "Like you're yeah. wearing yes. that blue sweater." Yes. Because <laughs> in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns, and then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. Yes. On the cover of Vogue, yes, she goes yep. like like meta, like yes. yeah, she's so like deep all, into like, that. You history, think yeah. this is foolish, yes, yes, but it's not because it's all I can show you how it's built. Yeah, and I think when you talk to somebody who knows the bones of the genre, you can really unpack these questions of why are why is switching the POV during a sex scene for the mm-hmm. first time mm-hmm. to a man a power move, yeah, a power move for Definitely the heroine and for the writer. Yes, yes, and yes. and why like we've never seen we don't see that usually in yes. these books, and I. I think that kind of intentionality, it feels very intentional, and she can pull it off. Like, she has the craft mm-hmm. to back it up. And there aren't many who can no. pull that kind of shift <laughs> no. off. 17 <laughs> no. chapters, and then you get a new POV? Absolutely. And he, and you stay with, he stays with you for the rest of the novel, you know, switching yeah. back and forth. But it mm-hmm. felt, I mean, it's real bold. It felt You know right. who else has done that? Um, Kennedy, have you ever read Anne Mallory? Yes. I can't remember which of hers I've read She's, before. You read the one, read I'm her. sure you read the one that I told you to read, probably, which is the one with the chess scene. Mm. Have you read that one? I don't <laughs> Where think she so. sells herself to, she basically, like, he wins her in a, in a bet from her father. And then they play chess for 70 pages. But <laughs> nice. there's another Anne Mallory, and I'll find it. I don't remember the title, but I will find it and put it in show notes that does a similar thing. I mean, clearly as an homage to this Kinsale, mm. um, but does a similar thing where for the first, like, third of the book, you don't get the hero. And then you get the hero. Um, and it's really, I remember reading that and just being like, wow, this is a bold move. Like... Um, but Anne, Anne writes like, she doesn't write romance anymore, unfortunately. She's another writer who every book was different. Like, every book took I love a different risk. 
a generation of romance isn't like the same as a generation of people. Right. And right. so, you know, we're not talking like 25 years and these are all in the, the same group. I mean, mm-hmm. I think a romance generation is maybe like 10 years, maybe. Yeah. Or, you know, and, and so it's like 50 shades since 50 shades seems like a generation, right. Since like bet me and it's like between bet me and, and 50 shades was another one. And I think that the thing too, is like when we think about how like narrative choices have changed over time, right? Like that was, it would be very hard to imagine someone doing that today and not, you know, like when I first joked about not liking it, it's because I was thinking about 2020 Jen, right? Mm-hmm. Not thinking like, hey, that was three generations of romance yeah. ago and, yeah. and books just read differently. Mm-hmm. For sure. I mean, that probably shattered some readers. I would imagine. I mean, I bet what's interesting too is I bet readers were really frustrated by the idea, when was that book? Do you do you know Kennedy? No, are you up, talking about? Are you talking about the Kinsale? Oh, yeah. Kinsale Shadow uh, Heart, Chapter Seventeen, Kinsale. Let me see. I'm going to Shadow Heart. I have to look at, but right? it's like t- maybe ten years between uh, the mm. companion novel and uh, like the first one. It's like maybe ten years between them because I want this one won this one won the Rita, which was let me see. It's first published in two thousand four. In 2004, we'd never seen, we really rarely saw single POV romance novels until, you know, no. 2010. You, that's not true. Really? Let me think about Wait, that. Wait, it was just always the heroine. Like, all of early romance was heroine only. Well, I don't know, because The Wolf and the Dove is, is double point of view. It is omniscient, but it's, well, it's double point of view. You know, those heroes are hard to crack. Yeah. 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 Because that's the problem, right? Yeah. Well, and I think when you talk about the hero we talk about, and this, I think, goes back to when you were asking me about Queen Move and what imprints us. Like, of course, those first novels, because I was blooded with, like, the wolf and the dove and a pirate's love. You know, now, pirate's love is rapey. But, I mean, it's like that alpha male, you know, that is it imprints on you and it kind of changes over the years. But I find myself still enjoying that dominance. But now as a grown woman, now as a, you know, a fully understanding feminist, that, that, (laughs) that primalness, that archetype still appeals to me, but it's, it has to be filtered through my philosophy, my personal worldview, my personal belief system now. So I find myself grappling as a reader and as a writer with when that line where I feel like you've crossed into male toxicity or you, you know, I I find myself, you know, examining that line a lot in my work. And when I wrote, I had to be super, super, super careful when I wrote uh, the All the King's Men duet the duology because the heroine is native american and the hero is white and there is such a harmful history where in romance that relationship that power dynamic has been appropriative has been harmful has been stereotypical has been demeaning has stripped native women of dignity um has stripped uh you know indigenous people of their you know, the culture. So even when I was, the research that went into that was, uh, it was the hardest research I've ever done. It was a 
it was a lot. I literally was consulting a medicine man <laughs> for parts of that book to make sure that I got it right. And of course had indigenous sensitivity and responsive readers from that tribe and from other tribes. So it was a whole thing. But then I had this alpha male and it was like, how am I going to have this alpha male with this Native American heroine and not perpetuate that? And it was such a delicate balance. You know, it was starting, their relationship had to evolve over the two books. Even their sexual, first of all, she had to be an alpha female. You know, she, it had, for me to feel like I was striking the right balance, she was an alpha female. So she was very assertive. She was very powerful. There was no dominating her. You know, he, I didn't ever, do you know what I'm saying? Um, Yes, of course. But even, you know how you might say something like is a savage kiss or something like that. That that word couldn't be in the whole book. You know, it's like, oh no, you can't do that. Okay. You know, so you, there's like this even tighter filter. And I found myself really having to restructure what the alpha male looked like um, in that in that context. And then when I wrote, and it it is very different because he is very dominant, but then also I think that he becomes more sexually aggressive as the book goes on because we start to trust him as an individual. Um, Do you know what I'm saying? Not as a caricature, but I think he can be more, in the beginning he's sexually aggressive, but not in the way he is by the end of the book, by the end of the second book, because readers know him as a person. They get to know him as a person and to trust him um, with her and see that she can trust herself with him without him perpetuating what we've seen before. Can I ask a question? Because this, and this is really to both of you, which is, I feel like there's a big conversation that, I mean, really in the past couple of years that romance has been having about like sort of like the cinnamon roll versus the alpha. And mm-hmm. Kennedy, like what you're sort of seem to be explicitly saying is if I'm interested in an alpha hero and I'm writing male-female romance, then what I need to create to balance that out is an alpha heroine. Um, I'm sure that it can be done. I'm sure that someone could do it without doing that. I think for the particular novel that I was writing and the particular history that came with that ethnic mix in a relationship, I made that choice. Um, But, I mean, when I got to Queen Move, I made a different choice, you know, where he is more more of a cinnamon roll hero, um, and she is very, very powerful. Um, And he is powerful. He's very, you know, very sexual in in the bedroom, very sexually aggressive, and she's aggressive, and she knows what she wants, and she's in charge of her her sexuality and her power, and they have a conversation about their number, and he's like eight, because he's been in a committed relationship for a long time, and she's like, I have no idea what my number is. (laughs) So, um, so they, he is very secure. She needs that. She probably makes more money than he does. Her job is higher profile. She's very, very powerful. And he is an educator. You know, he starts a school for underprivileged kids, um, a private school. So he's like, your zip code should not dictate your education. And he starts this private school that's, you know, funded. So he's an educator and she is electing presidents. And he is completely secure in the fact that she makes more money than he does. He's completely secure in the fact that she's, you know, on CNN commentating and he's not. Um, And he's exactly what she needs. So um, I don't know. And arguably what the world needs in 2020. I mean, he's a model, right? Which is interesting because he sort of is a model 
in the way that a lot of these heroes have always been models. Like you establish the 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 hero who walks through fire for the heroine, the alpha hero who walks through fire for a heroine and is sort of broken down and rebuilt for her in an image of like parody and partnership. That is that is the hero that needed to be modeled for many, many years. And now we need a different kind of hero to model. In some cases, yeah. But Ezra also like Ezra isn't a cinnamon roll to in the sense of like there's not he's not just all soft all the no, time. No, no, definitely not. No. Um he's introverted. Uh he is very self-contained. One thing that was very important for me, some people would call him a cinnamon roll hero, like in reviews or in conversations, but he is black and Jewish. Um, So he's a man of color. And one thing that I think we don't see enough with men of color, whether that's, you know, black men, Latinx men, um, whatever, is we don't see them so often as fathers, as nurturers. And he is a single dad. And I really wanted to unpack because he's very strong. He's quiet and strong. He's in direct contrast to Maxim from the first, from the duet, who is like a mogul, you know, sustainable energy. And he becomes, you know, just this huge, charismatic, like bigger than life figure. And of course we fall in love with him. But then there's this other guy who is so content with his life. You know what I'm saying? He's so on mission, his mission, and he's not comparing himself or his life or his choices or his mission to anyone else's. And he has his own strength. So I want him to be as big in readers' hearts as, the you know, living in Atlanta, running his school, doling out his son's vitamins every morning and making sure he doesn't drink Coke, you know, and <laughs> investing in his son and seeing his son as his mission raising a good human as his mission. I want that hero to be as big in readers' hearts as this other guy who is this huge mogul of sustainable energy and ends up being president. You know, I want both I want us I want readers to see the value of both and how both are fitted to these women. You know, how they complement these women and they're exactly what this woman needs. And that's also the choice. We as women have to decide what we need. You know, the essence of feminism, your choice. Um, and she chooses Ezra, you know, well, they, they're fated, <laughs> they're fated, mates. they're fated, mates. you know, they're born on the same day, they're soulmates, um, clear fated mates too. Yeah. I mean, the, one of my, it's so early in the book, I can sort of, I, I mean, it's chapter one. You can read it um, on Amazon. <laughs> but when I, yeah, you can read it on Amazon. <laughs> sure. Um, my, one of my favorite, I guess it's not chapter one. Oh, yeah, I can, no, it is. I don't know. It's early. You can read it on Amazon. So the, but it's, but it's the moment where she sees him. I mean, this is the magnificent thing, right? Like she sees him at her, she's at her father's funeral. The book begins with her at her father's funeral. Yes. The prologue. Yeah, the prologue. In comes this man who is the boy she loved as a child. I mean, there it is, right? My purid right but it's the boy that she loved as a child and he has his child is there and so is this child's mother who you are led to believe is this man's perfect beautiful wife and it is so heartbreaking for to watch this heroine who is buttoned up like at her father's funeral like 
cannot refuses to reveal kind of really any emotion. And here she is kind of whacked in the head by this boy she hasn't seen in years, who was her first love, right? Mm-hmm. And then whacked in her head in the head again by the fact that he has this beautiful wife who's with him. And and then and this beautiful child and this like perfect and her family, as you're reading this, her family is also just in shambles. Like, I mean, destroyed by the loss of this father figure. And so, like, the compare the, I mean, it's just, ma- the moment, I mean, you read that, that scene, and it's just so perfectly balanced, and it's, I mean, it's just amazing. And then, of course, you know, they're not, like, the wife is not really a wife, and so, like, it sort of unravels the way a romance novel should. Yeah, well, and, you know, I think one thing that people, someone interviewed me last week and they were like, you don't usually have weddings in your books, <laughs> you know? Um, cause my weddings book, cause are hard. They are hard, but I think a lot of, and I will often do weddings and bonus epilogues, um, as opposed to the actual like canon of the novel itself. And I, I like writing books where, the wedding is not the point, you know, so often it feels like, people yeah, are like, the wedding is never the point, right? You know, like getting to the altar, you know, is the point. And I, I wrote a series called the grip series. And in the third book, it's the, it's a trilogy with the same couple across three novels. And you're like, what is she going to do in that third book? You know, because they get together at the end of the second book and they get married pretty early in the third book. So I like writing books where the point can't just be, that they're happily ever, you know, that they get together. Like there's all these other things. And the series that I'm working on now, all the couples are married. <laughs> you know, it's like, so the point can't just be to marry each other. You know, and I think for me, it's so much more about the journey and what that looks like um, than just them kind of getting together. Don't you feel that partially that marriage, the marriage book, becomes more um, approachable for you as a reader as you age. Definitely. Like, I can remember that when I was a kid, marriage of convenience was just my least favorite trope. Like, I just didn't care about how hard it was to be married. Or, like, (laughs) second chance, right, with a married couple. Who cares? Right. But now I feel like there are certain writers who just do it so beautifully. And it's such a complex way of... very complex of telling a love story but i Um, also feel like isn't that the greatest thing about romance is that like there's so much there that as you age and grow and change in your life and your relationships like there's romances for you this isn't a genre you have to lose because your your life is different right it's and it's as kennedy proved it's a genre people can come back to and that's the part it's there's so much diversity and richness in the genre and just like the types of stories that you can find yourself attracted to is yeah kennedy can i ask a craft question (laughs) uh of course i don't know if i'm a craft no i i want to talk about that i want to go back to queen moon because so i talked earlier about how there's this epic kind of um generational story that's going on in this book and i don't want to spoil anything about it but you make a really interesting choice and and i thought as i was reading it you know i knew daring and the duke was coming mm-hmm. and i have just done this sort of generational not generational but like long long time love story right like yes. childhood love, love lost that. and regained I was like we both I know. I now I sort of feel like we should do this as like an Instagram live too and just talk about this for an we hour. Should. 
but so well I'm in if you are so I'm anyway the, but the the question that I have specifically is so you make a choice and it's about 25% of the is it about a quarter of the book like you mean where, when they're children we're in the past we're, yes, in, we're in, the past. in the childhood it's a yeah. long time mm-hmm. and I mean it's not I don't say that I, I mean, like, I loved every page of it, mm-hmm. but it's interesting because, I mean, I the, I really struggled as a writer with making the choice of, like, how much am I going to give them of the childhood yeah. versus the adult romance? And I wonder if you had that struggle, too, or how Definitely. you sort of came, but I also feel like your story being kind of multi-generational required that much energy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is a real question, but I feel like I want to talk about the choice, the craft choice of Mm -hmm. giving readers the past for so long. Yes. It is about 20% of the book. Um, Oh yeah, probably roughly about 20. I think it's about six chapters. Yeah. And I think that what helped probably for, for me as I was writing it is that it's so weird, I, you know, because you can do these time jumps and it can completely confuse readers. And I wanted to be clear about what I was doing because the part that you were just describing, which was, you know, at her father's funeral and this boy that she, you know, was her first kiss, her first, arguably her first love shows up 20 years later. They're seeing each other for the first time. That's the prologue. And it literally says two years before the present. <laughs> And you're like, what the heck is that? No, but I love that. (laughs) It was like, this, okay, reader, you're in the present. This happened two years ago. So the prologue says two years before the present. And we see them as adults. And we know that there is a certain intimacy between them. Not, there's obviously some kind of pull that's there. And I think I had, I put that there for those readers who don't want to, who have trouble with the childhood, you know? It's well, like, yeah, I mean, the, I think it had to be there, yes. right? Like, here's the but promise. As, yeah, yeah, um, eventually it's these two. Yes, it's these two. And the reason I felt like I had to go back, and then I think it goes, the next, the first chapter's like 1983, and it's in his mother's point of view. Yes. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's not it's even really in, cool. It's not even in one of their points of view. It's in his well, mother's they're point of view. babies. They're babies. They're <laughs> literal, literal babies. Infants <laughs> in a bathtub. And, you know, she's orienting us, and it's 1983, and it's Georgia, and she's a Jewish woman who has married a black man in 1983 living in Atlanta uh, because her husband is on scholarship at you know at Emory for law school and she has left her 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 community of faith back in New York very tight-knit community that wasn't sure how they felt about her marrying someone not even someone who was black but someone who wasn't Jewish. Uh, and so she has had, she's had tension with her family, but that's repaired. Um, and she's navigating this whole new, she feels, she says how she basically feels alone in the state, <laughs> you know, in the whole state. When she goes out with her son, people, you know, ask, is that your son? You know, these are things that are real experiences. And I was fortunate 
enough to find people who are actually black and Jewish, people who have actually negotiated the duality of those identities. And I definitely did not want to write like a tragic mulatto story. You know, I didn't want to do that and I did not go there. Um, but just showing some of the real difficulty that a family living in that context um, would be navigating, uh, but just as context. And um, we get, and it begins the friendship because there's a couple of themes. One of them is found family. Their families live next door to each other and they become, their families become close. And that was one of the things I really wanted to build in those childhood chapters, Sarah, was this foundation of, for the, what becomes their relationship. I wanted people to see from the beginning the closeness that is kind of the foundation for everything. So we don't just go like, it kind of skips fast. Like, yes, they're babies in chapter one, but when we get to chapter two, they're 10 years old, mm-hmm. you know, and then chapter three, they're like 12. And then chapter four and five and six, they're like 13. They're in the eighth grade. So it accelerates. It starts when they're babies, but then it accelerates. But all of these kind of key moments um, of childhood and adolescence are things she stutters. You know, when he's there for her and then she has her, you know, I'll just say this. She has she has her her cycle. You know, all every girl Uh, has had that thing at school where you have you know, you ruin a pair of pants and you know, and I was like, it's like people see it and he's like protective of her and wrapping his coat around her waist Mm -hmm. and you know, it's like all of and then they have their, you know, their, you know, dance right before they're going to high school and you know, she's with this you know, this not great guy who wants to be her first kid and she's you know it's just all this stuff you know the all of the adolescent angst before you're in high school all of that stuff and they're there for each other well Um, and that's what makes when Ezra leaves yeah when Ezra Ezra's parents divorce and his mother takes her takes him back to New York to her family well they don't divorce but or they don't divorce you're right you're right between the two families that explodes the friendship between those two families and they end up moving away Ezra's family ends up leaving Georgia and going back to New York and um it makes the 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 rift between the the end of that sort of intense childhood friendship so emotional Mm -hmm. and so amazing and I think it's just such an interesting choice because I have done I've done a few of these childhood or young love to older more seasoned love stories Mm -hmm. and I think I always struggle with time you know how much time to spend where and I just thought it was such a very important and like really cool choice to just lean into the past. Uh, I was brought, I was no, reminded was of Lisa Kleypas and again, the magic. Oh, oh mm. don't even talk about again, the magic. Um, no, I was <laughs> not talk about it because the magic. it's a similar uh, thing where these two yes. are just so intensely in so like intense. for each other. And it's so yes. clear that they're, that they're fated mates and then it breaks and it it's it breaks the reader's heart too i mean it's just it's really i mean uh, you know i love this book and i just found that i love books that do that have you you know i like obscure historical romance so um you know who nobody ever talks about and i think it's because she has some tax troubles and all kinds of are you gonna say megan mckinney Megan yes. McKinney is a real problematic person. Is she? 
But I just knew that she kind of disappeared. Um, boy, she I, blooded me too. Yeah. Her, she has a book called, I think, When Angels Fall. Mm-hmm. And it's that. It's the same thing where he is, uh, he is like, a, he works in her parents' stables and they're nobility and he is a stableman, but he's somebody's bastard. Yeah. They're always somebody's bastard. Sure. And he ends up becoming like the Earl and then her family is destitute. And it's this whole like intense, like, Ugh! revenge. Um, revenge. He thinks it's revenge, but of course he's just obsessed with her. Of course. Um, revenge is but, the um, best and worst motivation ever. <laughs> yes. But ha- have you so have you read um Wait. the ground of um, uh the the ground she walks upon? I think that's what it is by Megan McKinney. I, I mean I I'm sure I, that is not one. I I've read everything Megan McKinney has written. Yeah. But I mean we should say like you can look this up on Wikipedia. It's not a secret, but she <laughs> after, she lived in New Orleans and after Katrina she um perpetuated a very large tax scheme a fraud did she i knew and it then went with to taxes. went to prison so i did not know I, I mean, if, if Wikipedia is to be believed, that is what happened to Megan McKinney. Well, I think there's some documented evidence. There's some. There's citations. <laughs> yes, okay. exactly. Citations. Hey, I before we wrap up, though, I actually have a. <laughs> Jen's like, ladies. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm like, let me save you from yourselves with, like, you know, loving the Megan McKinney. Um, here's my question. Um Kennedy, your love for historical romance is, like, so intense. Have you ever thought about writing one? Oh, gosh, I'm so intimidated. Mm. I mean, I'm so, I'm really intimidated by, uh, I mean, my books are research heavy, but they're not, like, that type of research. And I have thought about it. I honestly have, um, but I just get so scared. I get so intimidated by it. I don't know why. Well, it sounds like you do a lot of people research. Like yes, everything yes. I've ever heard about you is how much you like talking to people. And I guess yes. if I can't, you know, dig out somebody from 1820 or whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to, usually like, especially with um, a lot of it is, and I think it's maybe my journalism background and all the interviews I always had to do, but it's something I lean into is people who have actually lived uh, things that mirror, you know, what my characters are doing. Uh, so a lot of interviews, lots of conversations, but also lots of reading. I've read, read lots of memoirs, um, Gosh, for all the king's men, I was literally reading like anthropological textbooks. I mean, it was just, it was really intense, but I wanted to get it right. So I think I have, I think I have the tools that I could if I can just get over. First of all, it had to be something that compelled me because I don't really write unless I feel compelled. And I know that sounds artsy fartsy, um, but I have to feel compelled by whatever that thing is at the core. And it's usually something that is happening. And for me, a lot of times, something that's happening in the real world that I want to shine light on in the context of an epic love story. Um, so those are the things that kind of get my wheels turning. Um, but if I could find something like that, that is in a different era, it probably would be 
I don't know when it would be. It might be in the 20s or it might be in the mm. 50s. You know, it might be something like that probably is because I have, I love like a marriage of art and activism in a lot of what I write. And I would well, like Well, Jazz to examine, Age New York, man. Yeah, yeah that's right, what I sure. keep thinking The Harlem about. Renaissance. I mean, there's so exactly. many. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I keep thinking about. So if, it, if I did venture into it, it'll probably be around there. There's a, you know, because that's also, you know, the explosion of of literature and culture and um, just all the things that, you know, that were amazing about that period. So, well, I'll read whatever you write <laughs> forever. So, um, <laughs> Kennedy, thank you so much. Will you come on again? This was so fun. Oh my gosh, this was so fun. It was great. It was amazing. <laughs> thank you guys for having me. I'm such a fan, and I, I was so nervous coming on, you guys. Like, I was oh, so no. nervous. Uh, it was so fun. I was like, they're so smart. Am I even going to know anything? No, you were great. <laughs> you knew all about Prince's many proteges. Proteges. I was like, I don't know. I was going to say backup singers, and I was like, that's not the right if no one else loves to be Eric, is it Eric? Is it it's Eric. Eric, <laughs> Eric well, Eric that's it. You, you're his new favorite. I, I want his heart. <laughs> um, thank you so much, uh, everyone. This is our second to last episode of the season. Jen, tell everyone what they won next week. So I guess I talked about it already. You did. Steve Amidon from the Bowling Green Pop Culture Library is going to be here. And we are going to go back and revisit. I'm actually super excited about this. We each read some of the books that were originally acquired by Vivian Stevens. And so we will be talking about some of those early historicals. Um, or sorry, early contemporaries in that um, essentially in... in in series that she like founded and put into place and what those books were doing. So we think it's going to be a really cool episode and we're going to all enjoy it. For those of you who've been sort of, um, you know, curious, whenever we talk about Vietnam, there's a lot of discussion of Vietnam in next week's episode. So, um, you know, get ready for that. And uh, then we're taking some weeks off, but there will be new episodes or at least new content every week uh, while we are off. But we are back the first week of August with season three um, and we are uh, we have a plan <laughs> we didn't have a plan and now we have a plan but this is Faded Mates you can find transcripts for many of our episodes all the music that's in all the episodes merch and other cool stuff at fadedmates.net. I have a book out. Uh, came out last week. You can listen. You can find Daring in the Duke in bookstores wherever books are sold, and listen to last week's episode once you've read Daring in the Duke. And there's lots of spoilers in there. But most importantly, Kennedy Ryan was with us this week. Her recent book is Queen Move. It is really truly magnificent. One of the best reads of my year so far. Surely it will be one of the best mm-hmm. reads of my year period um kennedy where can people find you um on instagram a lot um at kennedy ryan one and i'm on twitter and i have a website and you know all the places even if you just go to my uh instagram and click the link it takes you all to all the places uh so find kennedy in all those places and read her books and have a great uh have a great couple of weeks Hi, my name is Danielle. I am in California, and I am a community college teacher. I teach U.S. history. And the book 
book that blooded me was Jennifer Wilde's Love's Tender Fury, which now I know was written by a man, but I stole it off my mother's bookcase and read it, and then she was like, oh, maybe this isn't a good thing for you to read because, as you know, it's a little rapey. Um, and then I plowed through, like, Barbara Cartland's and my grandmother's Harlequin series, and eventually I went to graduate school, and my grad school friend introduced me to Loretta Chase, and so I'm a big fan of Lord of Scandrel. Um, I love your podcast. I love romance novels. They're getting me through the coronavirus and Trump's presidency, and please don't stop your podcast because... I love it. Thanks. Bye.